Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, this is Mark Duplass, and you're listening to Film Spotting. What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Adam Kempinar. And I'm Josh Larson. Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. Right now, I got to tell you about... The fabulous, most groovy... Bell bottom. Bell New theme song for 2018? Working on the rights as we speak, Josh. The John Spencer Blues Explosion there with their 1994 tune Bell Bottoms used to memorable effect in the opening scene of Edgar Wright's Baby Driver. This week on the show, we talk 2017's best opening scenes, funniest scenes, music moments, and more as part of our 2017 rap party. That baby driver scene actually could qualify for just about every one of those categories. Really could. We'll also announce the winner of the 2017 Golden Brick Award. That and more ahead on Film Spotting. Happy New Year, Josh. Happy New Year to all of our listeners out there. A belated one at this point. We are halfway through January, and this is our first show since our epic two-part top 10 films of 2017 roundtable. It's been a couple of weeks. I'm inclined to ask you, Josh, if you have any regrets from your list. I did see a tweet that you would rewatch The Florida Project, and maybe even oh, though yeah, even though right. you had it where at number three, yeah, I think it's I think it's at three. You yeah. were starting to question maybe it should have been higher. I think I watched it the next night after we recorded that. So, and of course, that's going to happen. I right. mean, if I watched Get Out again right now, I would bump that from two to one. So. I'm pretty happy with my list overall still, but yeah, those rankings are pretty pointless. Hmm. Tasha Robinson was part of that show, of course, from the Next Picture Show podcast and TheVerge.com. Michael Phillips from the Chicago Tribune, one of the guests on that show as well. We devoted the first part to our outlier picks, the ones that were unique to individual critics. And then the second part was for our consensus choices, kind of the, the films that we as a group anyway— seem to believe were the films of 2017 and some of those picks anyway you're definitely seeing on a lot of end of year lists as well that show included the battle of ebbing missouri Ah, a great name for it (laughs) fondly remembered in history books everywhere yes we may get to a little bit more talk about three billboards later in the show i know you can't wait The golden globes crowned three Ah, billboards all that 
That's, All that does that's is really got to make you feel good. <laughs> it just hurts my case for yeah, that movie. Exactly. Unfortunately, nothing like a group of foreign journalists saying that this movie got America in 2017 right. They have no taste whatsoever, <laughs> and it just infuriates its haters more. So great. Thank you, Hollywood Foreign Press. Those shows, as well as all of our shows, available over at filmspotting.net. If you click on lists, you can see those top 10 lists and listen to the audio as well or find them in Apple Podcasts. We will move on to the new movie year in earnest next week with our 2018 preview. Of course, I'll add the asterisk that we do plan to talk about Paul Thomas Anderson's Phantom Thread, a 2017 film, but just opening here in Chicago in January and a lot of other markets as well. And we may even do a little bit of revisiting The Last Jedi. So it's probably going to be February before we really turn that corner on the movie year. But we're going to do our best to say farewell to 2017 with our annual wrap party this year, much to the disappointment of some film spotting listeners. It's the in-studio edition. We're not doing it live. No, and I'm looking around at the crowd, and it's appropriately small. Jeremy, <laughs> Jeremy, production assistant. RPA is here watching <laughs> is us. in the studio. This is a little different than the 100 what we have had. Yeah, 100 to 200. Couple of maybe years. Maybe even more, depending on the venue. <sighs> but it'll still be fun. We will have a lot more talk about future live events coming up for those who do like to attend. Film spotting shows, we have something planned for July or August that I think is going to be pretty great, and we may pull off something else in the interim. I do want to note for Jeremy, our audience of one, that he can still boo your choices. So I don't want you to feel yes. like it's that different than our, our normal you, shows. Jeremy, please make those loud and hearty. But the format will be largely the same. We're going to share five categories and our choices within those categories, our favorite scenes of the year, including funniest and most moving moments. Music moments is in the mix. And we're going to announce the winner as well, Josh, of our ninth annual Film Spotting Golden Brick Award. But let's get started with our favorite opening scenes. Hello, this is Henrik Hansen calling from Yalding, Kent in the UK. In advance of your rap party, I've got my nomination for best scene of the year or best opening scene or the best use of the John Spencer music explosion hit Bell Bottoms. Yes, I'm talking about the opening scene of Edgar Wright's Baby Driver. It had action. It had verve, visual humor, three-car Monty on the highway. It was a big, wet kiss that just grabbed me and shouted, did you miss me? And speaking on behalf of all right-thinking people, I certainly did. I enjoyed the movie tremendously, and the opening scene was a real statement of intent. And I can't wait for the inevitable sequel, 59th Street Bridge Song. Thank you. Have a great show. Thank you, Henrik, not only for those thoughts, but for the Simon and Garfunkel reference at the end of that voicemail. I'm always down for a Simon and Garfunkel reference. Josh, Bell Bottoms, is it going to make your top five? Yeah, it's the pick. I mean, okay. come on. It has to be, really. And I guess I could say something like The Beguiled gets off to a really good ghostly start. Love the opening there. Mm-hmm. Raw has that creepy car yeah. accident bang. Uh, what else? Mudbound, I've talked about on our Top 10 show, how it has this uh, opening that's it's in the blood-soaked earth, right? We never really leave that for the rest of the film. It's crucial to how that film works. But man, this first scene of Baby Driver, it's so electrically ecstatic. Uh, it sort of dooms the rest of the picture yes, in a way. I mean, it does. You know, I think we've talked about how for both of us that film falls off for various reasons. But even if it 
had sustained itself to some degree, I can't imagine that it could live up to that level of precision and exhilaration that it does in the first couple of minutes. And maybe that would have been okay. Uh, But you can't beat what you get here. My favorite little bit in this long sequence is when Baby is racing through the parking garage and we get a whoosh every time he passes a concrete column from the levels of the parking garage that's right matched with, I think it's the strum of the guitar, the beat Mm -hmm. of the drums, right? The image and sound perfectly in sync. Everything is in that sequence, but here it's just this great little kicker. So obviously could have considered this as best musical moment, but really no other movie started with this sort of bang. So I had to put it at the top. So we'll get through some of our honorable mention picks here and other finalists as we go, but I'm with you and I'm with Henrik. It was also my choice for best opening scene. And you're so right. It's a scene of the year contender. It's absolutely a music moment of the year. The way Edgar Wright doesn't use any dialogue and we get the great use of faces. Mm -hmm. Every character who we see in that vehicle with baby, of course, baby's face and his expressionistic take acting out the song that he's listening to just the physical movement. And then you add in the movement of the car, of course, in rhythm with the music as well and even the breaks in the music are timed perfectly with the action and with baby's movements and also his joy is something that i think is so important to that scene his joy at performing because he's also doing something that we come to learn and we do get a sense of in this scene even as it's electric and it's it's incredibly exciting we are able to see through some of the close-ups that he is involved with something he may be reluctant to be involved with. Yeah. But he does love the driving part and he loves the music part. He is really good at that. So it's joy, but we do get a sense and we fully understand it later that it really is a kind of solace, actually, that he's taking in doing this thing that he hates to do. But it does what every great opening scene should do. It sets up the entire movie. It gets us excited. It shows us exactly what type of movie this is going to be. And it reveals who all of those primary players are. We actually get a sense of who they are as people and that's remarkable that editing the choreography the three card monty there with the cars that hendrick mentioned is fantastic basically this is the fast and the furious if it was directed by jacques Demy, (laughs) and i love it probably that's a good that's a good comparison so you had some honorable mentions and speaking of reluctance i was reluctant to tell you how i approached my list i i thought maybe i could just sneak it by you and you wouldn't notice all the titles i was mentioning but I'm going to give you an opportunity to groan out loud for everyone. I came up with a top five for every category. Oh, good Lord. And I have honorable mentions for every category. But I'm going to go quick. I'm going to go quick. I promise. Valerian and the City of a Thousand Planets. Totally forgettable movie, but great opening. We talked about it during the review. 1975 to like the 28th century, all to David Bowie's Space Oddity. Alien Covenant, a movie I don't like, but that prologue with Waylon and the android David after he's just been born, is fantastic. 120 beats per minute, or BPM, the opening act-up stunt, and then the aftermath of that, where as a group they discuss what went wrong and what went right. Eliza's dream at the beginning of Del Toro's The Shape of Water. I really like the opening of Molly's Game, which did you see Molly's Game? I have not seen that yet. The Aaron Sorkin film. It's about five minutes long, and it really gets at this question that Jessica Chastain poses with the narration. What's the worst thing that can happen in sports? And it's just as witty 
and kind of charming as you would expect from Sorkin. And then how about Pennywise's introduction in It? We heard from a listener, Jeremiah Dollins, who said, despite my mixed feelings about the film, the opening scene is pop culture gold. The death of poor Georgie still terrifies, horrifies, and grosses me out. A trifecta of dark emotions underlined by the slithering voice of Pennywise the Clown. So all those are great. But what about Dunkirk? That's my number five, the eerie quiet of the village, those flyers falling, these soldiers who are trapped, and it's very ominous because it's so quiet, and yet there's some serenity as they are detached from the, the battle to come, but then it's all shattered by gunfire. I love, as we mentioned during part two of our top ten show, the opening of Paul Thomas Anderson's Phantom Thread, the House of Woodcock coming alive with yeah, people we'll get to and that work. Next week. We certainly will. Lady Bird, which I almost throw out, Josh, because I think some people are forgetting this happens a lot with movies when you love a scene so much that you think you associate it as the beginning of the film. That that car door exit, the surprise car door mm-hmm. exit that the Ladybird character makes, that's not actually the first scene. It follows them waking up in a motel, oh, in a motel room. room. Yeah, and there's right. this nice little moment of tenderness mm-hmm. between the the mother and daughter character and then we get that shattered when they really start fighting but you just see through that whole opening if you count those two scenes together and hey who am i to decry anyone's cheating you see so much common ground between them and then also we see where the fracture is get out of course is my number two the playing with expectations which is at the core of that entire movie what we think is happening versus what is and and the overlap that exists there a black man seemingly lost in a really nice neighborhood. You do expect something bad to happen to him. But what what is that bad thing? You think, well, maybe a police officer is going to roll up and wonder what he's doing there, and that's going to lead down a negative path. Well, a car does roll up, but it's not a police officer, and something even terrible way beyond that does happen. But all those could not contend with the majesty, Josh, the majesty of Baby Driver. Hey, we don't have any guests. You know what? We don't have any if, guests here, so I can, I can just go on. in front of a live audience, half of that's the why I'm auditorium doing would have left by now. That's that, why I'm doing it. In the it. break, you're going to have to do what we're supposed to do, is pair some things away. Jeremy doesn't and choose, mind. Choose your favorite. Jeremy enjoyed all my picks, <laughs> so... We're ready to move on from there, Josh. Are we? We've got some time. Are we? Are you We've sure? We've got some time to fill here. Five categories, no guests. We're not, we're not singing. We'll be, we'll be all right. Don't worry about we're gonna, filming time. We're going to make it through. What are we up to? Funniest? We are. I've been out the game for a minute, and I don't know what these young girls are doing out here to handle all that, but I'm not on that train. Come on now, Lisa. I ain't never know you to back down from a challenge. Just grapefruit them. What? Yeah, I ain't never grapefruited before. No, but I'm listening. What you want to do is you get a grapefruit, right? Okay. And you cut both ends off mm-hmm. as so. Then you cut <clears throat> a hole in the middle like this, like a nice little tunnel. And then you place that on his penis like this. Oh. Okay. Like that. Oh. Right? Our producer Sam having to do some very creative editing with that scene from Girls Trip, Tiffany Haddish. The grapefruiting scene, Josh, is Girls Trip a film you've been able to make time for at this point? I was short on comedies in general this year, and Girls Trip was one of those I missed out on, even with all of the praise for Haddish and knowing that long shot for 
Supporting Actress mm-hmm. Awards, but yeah, have not seen it yet. Yeah, I did manage to fit it in just before we did our final awards voting because I thought that Haddish would be a contender. And now I have to admit, as we're talking, I can't remember whether or not she made the final group of five for the Chicago Film Critics, but the New York Film Critics Circle did give her Best Supporting Actress. And I will just say about that scene, I'll say about the movie too in general, It it is very funny. It's a riot. And that scene in particular... Watching it again, I don't know how the other actresses in the scene, Jada Pinkett Smith and Queen Latifah, I don't know how they made it through any takes of that (laughs) scene. Watching Tiffany Haddish and that banana and grapefruit without without losing it completely. I don't know how it got filmed. I'm actually suspicious that when we cut away to them and just see them in two shot, they might have filmed it on a different day. (laughs) There'd be no way to watch that scene and watch Haddish and not just die laughing. All right, well, to counter your 14 picks that are about to come. I've only got and, nine. And to reveal nine or the ten. dearth of comedies I was able to fit in last year. I only have one honorable mention here. The really? only other movie that I thought of See, seriously. See, I need to fill time. Okay, was, this is good. Was uh, Thor. And there could have been a, a yes. number of them from Thor Ragnarok. I think I probably would have gone with that opening one where he's hanging from the iron chains around him, talking to the fiery demon Sartre. And I just love how... Taika Waititi, director Taika Waititi, decides to open this superhero extravaganza with, you know, a comedy of manners is kind of what it turns out to be. And uh, so many other great moments, funny moments from that film. But if I'm being honest, nothing made me laugh harder last year than Lego Bruce Wayne twiddling (laughs) his bat thumbs while waiting for his lobster Thermidor to heat up in the microwave. I mean, that whole montage of Wayne's usual routine of coming home after a long night of Joker battling, it's just great. I love that his mail, the report of his mail, includes a coupon from Bed Bath & Beyond. It expires in two weeks, but I've heard that some stores will honor them past the expiry date. Copy that. Also, Alfred is on the 17th floor, grouting tiles in the second bathroom of the fifth master bedroom. Do you want me to tell Alfred you're home? No, that's cool, computer. Thanks for the update. Uh, so many wonderful details. You know, Adam, I love slow burn yes. humor, you know, where the gag is just drawn out to ridiculous lengths. And You do. They don't. To my disappointment, they don't let this bit with the it microwave really play out. He punches in two minutes. Actually, first he punches in 20 minutes. And, <laughs> Stupid. <laughs> <laughs> then he punches in two minutes. But they go for a full 25 seconds. I counted it where he's just watching the thing spin. I giggle the whole time. Yeah. Every time. No, I do love that scene. And we've got some crossover here because I have, as honorable mentions, a scene from Thor Ragnarok, though. It's actually Loki's play. Once you get cued into the oh, fact good. Yeah. That, that it's really Loki playing the Anthony Hopkins character and that he has concocted this entire charade to make him look great and you see the cameos that are in the scene did you as catch well on? it was damon right away yeah it, yeah I, I did it took me a couple i, I knew it was someone i knew right <laughs> but it took a little bit no i definitely recognized damon and so that just added to what i already thought was pretty hilarious lego batman movie for me and there are multiple lines and gags that we could look at here one that came up at least one listener either on facebook or twitter pointed out the great line which is when bruce wayne meets Dick Grayson. And he says, my name's Richard Grayson, but the kids at school call me Dick. And he says, well, kids can be cruel. (laughs) (laughs) And it's shortly after that that we get the one I've chosen as an honorable mention where we are introduced to Barbara Gordon, the new commissioner. And the video montage that they play behind her that's her highlight reel 
where we hear the voiceover say she cleaned up the streets of Gotham's nearby sister city, Bloodhaven, using statistics and (laughs) compassion. That's my favorite bit in that entire movie. Another listener, we had so many great picks and such great input from our listeners all over social media. I really thank them for reminding me of a lot of great scenes. And this is one I probably would have overlooked, but Matt Curley on Facebook just wrote this moment, and there was a picture. And it's the picture of Mooney from the Florida Project. There maybe isn't a ton of humor in the Florida Project, but this was genuinely laugh out loud funny. The moment in that film where Mooney is getting her picture taken by her mother in front of a house that's on fire that she started. Yeah, right. <laughs> and the look and on Mooney's face. She's proud. There's there's that weird that weird mix of pride and also horror. Is this going to be tracked see. back to me? Yeah, yeah. Is this really happening? You even see it on young Brooklyn Prince's face. So I do love that moment. And this is a movie that everyone largely forgot, but T2 train spotting. When Renton and Simon, Johnny Lee Miller, Ewan McGregor, they end up in a Protestant bar where they're trying to run a scam to get credit cards and make some quick money. They realize they're in a Protestant bar. They somehow end up on stage having to perform for this group or they're going to get eaten alive. And so they start singing an anti-Catholic song called No More Catholics and everyone rejoices. That's another great moment. But for me, I, Tanya is my number five. One bit in I, Tanya in particular, Sean Eckhart, he's the the bodyguard who set a lot of this in motion with Jeff Galuli, of course, Tanya Harding's boyfriend. He believes at his core that he's like a secret agent. He's this, this espionage expert. And it's later in the film, he's being interviewed by some media member and they are asking him about his background and they've done all this digging and they know that that he just lives at home with his parents and this is all a fantasy and they say now you claim to be this espionage expert but you're not and he says but i am and they go but but you're not we have we've done all the research but i am and he just keeps going on about seven more times but i am the meyerowitz stories the noah Baumbach film from this year i think really good performances from adam sandler and ben stiller in that film among other people ben f on twitter reminded me of the elevator scene where it really is a marvel and this is a great scene that speaks to what i've been arguing recently which is Baumbach's development is not just a really good writer but as a visual filmmaker it's all shot in one unbroken take following those two brothers who are completely disconnected from each other going into an elevator taking the elevator and then getting off on a floor to go see their father and they have over a two-minute conversation in this unbroken take where they are just constantly well they're disconnected yeah, they're Even talking though over each they're other talking the over time, each other yeah. every every time ben stiller says something adam sandler interjects something and then that's contradicted by what the other one says and it's it's very honest and truthful in the way siblings can have that disconnection, but it's also really okay. funny. Dad says you started your own company. Yeah, a couple other guys and me How's decided that work? to... You just tell your boss, like, I'm going to start Well, my... I was one of the partners, so I didn't technically right. have a boss. No, I understand. So you got a better offer? No, there were no offers. That's what was so scary. We were creating our own opportunity. Because you wanted something smaller. Bigger. Many of the firm's clients came with us. Which was surprising. No, we expect it. We can't legally ask clients to come with us. But they but don't have much them. choice. It's totally their choice. No, I know. Because you have their money. Well, their money is with the firm, but their money is in investments. I or understand. Bank. My buddy Ptolemy, who lives across the street, or lived across the street. Dad told me about your Karen. Ptolemy is like you. He Sorry. He works in uh, also. arbitrage. Yeah, that's not what I do. 
For me, the line in Lady Bird, this is my number three. There are so many moments I love in Lady Bird, but it's it's for me not the bigger, broad moments like the car door exit. It's it's just the really brilliant bits of dialogue and bits of truth that Greta Gerwig sprinkles throughout the movie. It's when she has, let's say, a sexual encounter for the first time with her boyfriend, who's played by, call me by your name, Timothy Chalamet, and... They're having a little bit of an argument afterwards, and she says, who the F is on top their first time? And, Josh, it's, it's really funny. It's just hilarious that, that she would say that in that moment, but it's so fitting for her character because everything that Lady Bird character does is to fit a perception of herself where she wants to believe that she's more cool, she's more interesting, she's more rebellious, more unconventional than she really is. So the fact that she would say that in that moment is just so true to her character. My number two, The Big Sick. There are lots of really funny moments in that film. Kumail Nanjiani, Emily V. Gordon, directed by Michael Showalter, but the moment where he is kind of meeting, I think, Emily's parents for the first time, Ray Romano and Holly Hunter, they're at the hospital. Their daughter's in a coma. They're mad at him anyway because he's just left... Their daughter, he wasn't truthful with her and they've broken up. And now here he is trying to kind of weasel his way back in and acting like he cares. And out of nowhere, Ray Romano decides that he he wants to have a heart to heart with him about 9-11. So, uh, 9-11. No, I mean, I've always wanted to have a conversation with about it with people. You've never talked to people about 9-11? No, what's your, what's your stance? What's my stance on 9-11? Oh, um, anti. It was a tragedy. I mean, we lost 19 of our best guys. Huh? That, that was a strong contender for number one, but the trip to Spain is my number one. And it's the sequence where they're at a restaurant that I think is called Extabari. Wait, wait, wait. I'm lost. Number one or your pick? It is my number one. It's my pick. This is your pick. Okay. My number one is my pick. I got your structure now. Yes. There you go. Five down to one. (laughs) You should be familiar with it. And it's the moment in particular where Steve Coogan is complaining about a shoulder problem that he's having. And he puts his – this is lovely radio here, but our audience of one will appreciate it. He puts his hand up like he's he's waving to someone and then slowly is rotating his hand – down, like mm-hmm. he's kind of stretching his shoulder. And Rob Brydon says this. You look like a tentative Nazi. Oh, <laughs> uh, I think what we're doing, you know, is so wrong on so many levels, but I just can't stop. Why are your Nazis so camp? <laughs> oh, I'm a Nazi. Oh. You tell me, Führer. Herr Hitler. Was he furious? Mm, he will be. <laughs> That really did make me laugh more than any other moment in film this year. But that whole sequence (laughs) is full of a ton of great bits, the best bits in that film. The hearing aid scene where Steve Coogan talks as if Rob can't really hear him because there's a constant hum in his ear. The joke Bryden makes about the chef making chorizo that looks like his grandmother. And the whole scallops bit that turns into a James Bond riff that... That's just the best stuff I saw in comedy all year. The trip to Spain almost squeaked onto my top 10, actually. I mean, it was in the running for a while there, and I still have to shake out my 11 through whatever, but it'll be pretty high up. Yeah, it's definitely in my top 20 at this point, and I need to finish up my top 25 or 30 as well. Okay, I think I've talked enough. 
We'll see if I'll allow Josh to weigh in anymore as we get through more of our choices in this 2017 wrap party. If you have any thoughts here initially on our first two categories, opening scenes and funniest moments, we'd love to hear from you. Feedback at filmspotting.net. Since we did get Baby Driver's bell bottoms out of the way already, who's going to win then for best musical moment? That's up next, and we'll also reveal the winner of this year's Golden Brick Award. Stay with us. You've got your ball, you've got your chain tied to me, tie, tie me up again. Who's got the claws in you, my friend, into your heart, heart beat again? Sweet like under to my soul, sweet you rock and sweet you roll. Lost for you, I'm so lost for you. Oh, when you come The Japanese archipelago, 20 years in the future. Canine saturation has reached epidemic proportions. An outbreak of dog flu rips through the city of Megasaki. Mayor Kobayashi issues emergency orders, calling for a hasty quarantine. Trash Island becomes an exiled colony. The Isle of Dogs. We're going to get back to our 2017 rap party categories in just a bit. But as we move into 2018, start looking at the new releases... Never too early to get excited for a new release from Wes Anderson. Anderson's return to stop motion, no less, with Isle of Dogs. That's going to be out in March. Next week, we're going to look at the whole year, March and beyond, and pick some of the films we're most interested in and probably ask questions, as we usually do, about the coming year rather than just name the titles. That will be our 2018 movie preview. Always fun in the past to make predictions and mm-hmm. anticipate things even if they never materialize in any shape or form. Well, you remember Sofia Coppola? Yeah, how is The Little Mermaid Little live Mermaid. action coming? Wasn't that on your list one year? Uh, I think that's a 2036 release <laughs> at this point. For the record it did exist. I've been accused of just making I, it up. I don't out of believe whole you. Cloth. Uh-huh. At one point it had an IMDb page. Okay, you'll have to provide some that supporting evidence. evidence there, It's Josh. in the deep web at aren't this you, point. Aren't you, speaking of Anderson there and that clip we heard, aren't you one of those misguided people? And there are many out there who thinks that The Fantastic Mr. Fox is his best film. I don't put it at his best. You don't. I probably have it in the top three. Okay, I'm pretty Possibly. sure you do. Yeah. But I haven't consulted your letterbox list in a while. And have you watched it recently? No, that's the problem. Oh, that's the a problem. thing of beauty. Mm. And wit. And of insightfulness. It might be at number we'll two. We'll see. We'll see. You just talked yourself into it? Yes. (laughs) Also on that 2018 preview show, we will spend a little bit more time on 2017 because we plan to review another Anderson film, Phantom Thread. It did come up in part two of our top 10 show. Tasha and Michael both had it very high on their list. Neither of us had it in their top 10. Now, Josh... It's normal for you to make such mistakes, especially yeah, with PTA. Is, I mean, you have a history of this. I've done this plenty of times. You've got to be I don't, sleepless over yeah, this. I don't have a history of this because in the last two cases being the master and there will be blood, 
I was able to squeeze in a second viewing before I had to wrestle with my top 10 films of the year. And by that point, they were definitely on it. And certainly with There Will Be Blood, I think I had, we said a while back on our 2007 review show that I think I had it at six. Yeah, sounds Should like have been six or seven, much, something like much that. Much higher. The master I had very high, maybe even at number one. So I'm usually pretty good with Anderson. And for me, Phantom Thread was in the top 15. Not bad, but I am expecting that after I see it a second time, if if past history is any indicator, it's a movie that is probably going to bump something out. How about Inherent Vice? Did you have that in the top 10? I can't remember. That is a great question. I was a big fan of Inherent Vice. Yeah, I liked it too. I was, and I think I did have it in my top 10, but okay. I'd have to go back and look at the list over at filmspotting.net. Beyond just wanting to dissect this film a little bit and force myself to see it a second time. It is a movie that despite its opening before the end of the year, it being a 2017 film, technically, it's really just expanding and showing in a lot of markets now here in January, opening here in Chicago, in fact, this weekend. So Phantom Thread and our 2018 movie preview all coming up next week. We will also play Massacre Theater. Originally, we intended to do that horrible bit of acting this week, but with all these categories and, of course, all of my picks, we just decided to push it <laughs> there back. There was no room for yeah, it no anymore. Room. Push and, it back one more week. The usual rehearsal time we didn't get. Yeah, I mean, got to have that. Just in case you drank too much spiked eggnog and you can't recall that last massacre performance, here's just a brief reminder. Where would you be? I saved us. It's me. We survived because of me. Not anymore. I think I might have had a little <laughs> spiked eggnog before you doing more, that. I think. Not because of the alcohol, because the, the thickness yeah. of the liquid yeah. was, oh, was the problem. It all it came got through. caught in my throat. Yeah, we could tell. You have until Monday the 15th to submit an entry. Email yours to feedback at filmspotting.net. The winner will be randomly selected from all the correct entries and announced on next week's show. We also always like to throw in a quick plug for our merch, which you can get by going to filmspotting.net and clicking on shop. Maybe you want to buy movies or prayers, Josh's book that came out earlier this year, or maybe you just want something lower maintenance. You just want to throw on a film spotting t-shirt, not do all that reading. Choose your level of time commitment. Filmspotting.net slash shop. Filmspotting.net is also where you can get free movie passes. If you're in the Chicago area, we often give away passes to advanced screenings or run of engagement showings. And speaking of Phantom Thread, just a screening here this week that we gave away passes for and the Golden Globe winner for Best Foreign Language Film in the Fade starring Diane Kruger. We also had some passes for that. It's always a good idea if you're interested in those just to periodically check filmspotting.net and click on events. The housekeeping is now out of the way. Let's Let's give away an award. Forget the Golden Globes. We've got the Golden Bricks. It's the Golden Brick Award. Put on your helmet and your sword. Bow down to the lords of independent cinema. It's the Golden Brick Award. I hope you have your helmet and your sword. I hope you've bowed down to your Lord. Salvation for the sin in ya. Other than the audience interaction, maybe the thing I miss most about not doing a live rap party, no Abraham Levitan. 
Yeah, we weren't able to get him last year either. And the show suffered. Let's just say it. The show suffered as a result. Of course. We didn't have Abraham on stage. Now, Jeremy has abandoned his seat. I can't, has. Im- I can't imagine why. No, me either. But he's gone. He went home. So it's open here for Abraham. Can we get him in real <laughs> That's quick? That's true. I'll give him a call. Okay. See what you can do. <laughs> it's time to announce the winner of Can It Be Already, our ninth annual Golden Brick Award. Josh, do you want to explain to someone out there who may be a newer listener to the show, just tuning in for the first time, just downloaded it for the first time, they don't know what our criteria is for the Golden Brick? I will do that. Basically, not a mainstream movie or even one that went on to get a lot of acclaim and wasn't expected to. So it wasn't highly publicized during the year, didn't get a Mm -hmm. wide release. We prefer that it's made by a new or emerging filmmaker. Sometimes this means new to us. Yeah. In the case of Sean Baker, director of Florida Project and Tangerine, he had a couple of films under his belt before we learned about him through Tangerine, but still he was new to us, so he was eligible. We look for impressive directorial vision or artistic ambition in the project. And then we do require that the movie be reviewed or recommended by at least one of us on the show in the course of the year. There you go. The winner is determined by listener vote plus voting among us and the film spotting family. So the critics, the esteemed critics who are part of the Next Picture Show podcast, Film Spotting SVU, and Michael Phillips from the Tribune, who is basically family here, a recurring guest on the show. They all get a vote. And we thought, of course, it would make sense if we're going to announce the winner. We should recap the five finalists. Brigsby Bear was the debut film from director Dave McCary, co-written by and starring Saturday Night Live's Kyle Mooney. This was a comedy that involved kidnapping, pursuing your weird dreams, and a pretty good Mark Hamill, I can confirm, yes. now that I've seen it. It was also Tasha Robinson's number four film of the year on yes, our top was. ten show. My number three film of the year, also a Golden Brick finalist, Columbus, the debut from video essayist and filmmaker, Koganada, starring John Cho and Haley Lou Richardson, a character drama set among the modernist architectural masterpieces of Columbus, Indiana. Lady Macbeth is also one I was able to catch just recently, a bleak and bloody debut from British director William Oldroyd. Has a fantastic lead performance from Florence Pugh. Yes. Would have snuck on to my ballot absolutely if I had been smart enough I had to a see feeling. it in time. Yeah. Loving Vincent, also a contender, the hand-painted animated story of the mystery of Vincent Van Gogh's final days. It's co-directed by Dorota Cobiella and Hugh Welchman. And our last contender was Raw, the coming-of-age horror film set at a veterinary school. It's a debut film from French director Julia Ducourneau. Made my top ten list at number four, and I had support from Michael Phillips. He put it at number eight. Okay. You've heard the finalists. Now let's get to the listener's choice pick, the poll results, which we, of course, did factor into the final voting as well. So the listener's votes went this way. In last place was Loving Vincent, only 7%. Lady Macbeth got 10%. Brigsby Bear close there with 12%. Then we jump up to a fairly tight race at the top. Raw received 33% of the vote, but Columbus won it with 38%. Columbus, the listener's choice winner, Luke Maldarella in Phoenix says Columbus is a film about how Art moves us and heals us and how it brings people together in ways we never would have imagined, just like I never would have imagined that a film about buildings could be my number five of the year. Adam Grossman said, Koganada infused Columbus with more heart, cinematic beauty, soul, and profundity than any other movie I saw in 2017. Absolute perfection in terms of its portrayal of real human connection and those fleeting moments in time that define us and the world around us. In those terms, I put it on a par with Richard Linklater's Before Trilogy, and I do not say that lightly. 
Koganata, I can't wait to see what you do next. Bold statements there from Adam. I love it. Evan writes, I really enjoyed Raw. It was provocative, stunning, and its messages resounded with me. That being said, my vote has to go to Columbus. It was subtle, introspective, really moving, and the fact that I have not heard another soul outside of film spotting even mention it is a real shame. It's a poetic story of letting go, moving forward, and finding your passion. Exactly the type of film more people need to see. Of course, I second everything Evan said, but I love that note in there about it being a film that he really only heard about because of film spotting. That really was the origin of the golden brick. It is the impetus behind it. We hope to shine a light on some of these films that otherwise go under the radar and get more people to see them. And that was the case with the movie that was the inspiration for this award, Ryan Johnson's debut film brick, which Sam and I at the time both saw and loved and proselytized for and proselytizing really is what maybe Film spotting's overall mission is, but it certainly is the mission of the Golden Bricks. Here's a vote for Raw. Comes from Chris. No other first-time director made anything in 2017 that was as surprising, provocative, and stylish as Raw. As good as some of the other Golden Brick nominees are, it's the next work from this filmmaker that I'm most excited to see. Another qualification I think we take into account. Raw has a striking opening, Chris says, maybe the most memorable closing image of the year, and a series of shocking, gorgeous images in between, all while working brilliantly on both an allegorical and narrative level. Yeah, that really is a great point about what is at the heart of the Golden Brick and voting and what also makes it difficult because I had Raw lower rated overall than you did or Michael. I was more mixed on it as much as I responded to just how surprising and provocative and stylish it is. And because of that, even though I had Lady Macbeth rated slightly higher as a film, I think I had Raw as my second place vote for the Golden Brick, simply because when it came down to imagining the next film from Oldroyd, and I can't wait to see whatever that is, or Ducourneau, I had Ducourneau rated slightly higher. Joel Edmonston in Vancouver says, Raw is not just my favorite horror movie of 2017, nor my favorite debut of 2017. It is my favorite movie of 2017. Having been at the fabled 2016 TIFF screening, did you hear about this? Is this true? Where, this might have been where I first heard about Raw, yeah. Where ambulances were called and the lore about the movie's horrendous gore began, I must say it is so much more than just a gross-out cannibal movie. Not that I don't love a pure gross-out cannibal movie. I mean, who doesn't? It's also a sensual, funny, and emotional coming-of-age story that rivals the drama in Lady Bird and The Florida Project. Although I think it does welcome non-genre fans, it also has some shock in store for those of us who think we're desensitized. I can't wait for what Julia Ducourneau does next. There you go. Hugo Castillo in Los Angeles says Raw really takes the cake for combining two genres, horror and coming-of-age, without feeling ridiculous or over-the-top. This isn't Ginger Snaps or The Craft. This is Zuofsky's Possession or Polanski's Repulsion. It takes real-life, anxiety-inducing situations and turns up the intensity to blood-curdling levels. No other brick contender got my blood pumping and my heart racing as effectively as Raw did. A few more here. Alex Hochberg says, wait, wait, wait. I voted for Raw because it was innovatively grotesque or grotesquely innovative, and it changed the way I will look at raw chicken forever, but I just saw Columbus. And I need to change my vote. I want to call up the characters in this film once a week just to check in. And I need to go to Staples soon to print out every shot of this film to hang up on my wall. (laughs) I said the same thing during our top 10. Kyle Bailey here. Okay, I've already conceded the fact that Columbus will probably win this, but the real winner of this poll should be the thrill ride that is Lady Macbeth, my second favorite movie of the year. Every year, my favorite golden brick contender just seems DOA with the sheer lack of it being seen in theaters. Like my 2015 pick, The Diary of a Teenage Girl. I hope more people seek this out. Yeah, and Loving Vincent, I think, is another victim of that. It was the last Golden Brick film we nominated in December, and it's still just in theaters. It's really hard to see. So maybe would have got more votes at the same time. 
tough to compete, I think, with these other films, including Lady Macbeth, Raw, and Columbus. And we had to mention this comment from Lawrence Cleveland. He says Lady Macbeth is the film for me. The scene where she mounts her redacted in front of her redacted and locks eyes on him while she does it is the scene of the year for me. Worthy contender, Lawrence. Yep. Darren has a note here. Tone management is a term that came up recently on the show. And Brigsby Bear is definitely a movie that could have gone a number of wrong ways that Dave McCary managed to avoid. Without ever getting silly or mean-spirited, it made me laugh more than any other movie this year. It is the one movie on the list that I would suggest with enthusiasm and without reservation to anyone looking for a recommendation. That is a rare find. So lots of love for our finalists, but just a little bit more love for the runner-up Raw and the ultimate listener's choice winner in the poll Columbus. So we have that settled. Listeners have picked Columbus. We then take that vote. We throw it into the mix, into that crazy algorithm. We've got PAs who are just crunching the numbers, really, all hours of the day, taking the listener vote and the votes of our esteemed panel. And at the end, it spits out a winner. And it was just like the listener's vote, very close. Raw, though, the runner-up, which means Columbus is your 2017 Golden Brick winner. And as we like to do on this show, if you're giving out an award, you have to have an acceptance speech, right? So let's go ahead and hear from the director of Columbus, Koganata. Hey, uh, quick apologies. I'm in a car and it's raining, but I am parked. Uh, First, thank you so much. We are enormously grateful and honored to be receiving the Golden Brick Award. I've been able to see all the other nominated films except Loving Vincent, and they're really all deserving of attention and conversation. We're so happy to be in their company, and thank you for taking note and supporting films like these. Your show is such an embodiment of the conversation of cinema, which for me is vital. So thank you. Thank you. And I don't know if it's true, but I heard that a bonus part of this award is that you get to direct a Star Wars movie. So that's pretty exciting. Um, And if I'm honest, I might even be more excited to see Anna Rose Homer's Star Wars or Sean Baker's Star Wars. That'd be pretty great. Anyway, thanks again. Happy 2018 and long live the resistance to dickish power. (laughs) Koganata. He, <laughs> he may have he did been say parked, but he took a U-turn there at the end. So in case anyone's curious about that sign-off there, Koganata did tell me that he was on his way. He was recording that in his car, parked, but in his car on his way to a Trump protest. Oh, well, that, that's so, strange because that's how he ends all his texts to me. So I just thought it was <laughs> business as usual. Is that a shot at me? I think that's a shot at me, isn't it? But thank you so much, Koganata, for those comments and for accepting your Golden Brick Award. I do love the notion of Koganata perhaps at some point directing a Star Wars movie, though. If you think about the furor that Ryan Johnson has stirred up over his Star Wars movie. His radical, radical Star Wars movie. I can't imagine how the fanboys would react to Anna Rose Homer or Sean Baker, and I'd love to see that. I would love to see any of those. I, I mean, obviously, film spotting has this power. It happened once. That's so it. Are it you call, with Ryan. you calling Lucasfilm or am I? <laughs> Doesn't matter. We'll ask Jeremy, the PA, okay, to do good. it. I'm sure he can get through. So we would love to just post that poll question. That should be our next poll question, actually. Whose Star Wars do you most want to see? <laughs> yeah, Koganata, Sean like Baker, it. or Anna Rose Homers? Our congrats again to Koganata and Columbus for taking home the ninth annual Golden Brick Award. Go to filmspotting.net slash bricks for more details. Among those details, you'll see how you can watch these finalists. And Columbus is a film 
where the DVD date hasn't been set yet. Do people watch DVDs anymore? I though, do, Josh. I do. <laughs> I do. How I suppose do you think when that's I my saw only option. The room. <laughs> that's true, but. Otherwise, you can see it on Hulu, you can see it on iTunes, and you can also see it on Amazon Video. We are going to move ahead to 2018 with our new poll question. We're looking ahead a week to our 2018 movie preview, and it's a most anticipated of 2018 deathmatch. Now, a little sidebar. Sam and I were talking about poll options here, and usually we go with a poll question that takes the most obvious contenders. You look at the slate of movies that are scheduled to come out, and there's always three to seven obvious choices. Mm-hmm. And we want to know from listeners which one of those they're most excited to see. I don't know how this portends for our preview next week, but other than Isle of Dogs, there weren't those obvious choices no, that like Sam and I hitters, were seeing. No big names. No. no. I, I no. Even and really I know there are some exceptions. Slate yet, so. Some foreign language directors, but... Okay. but the PTAs and the, yeah, the Wes mean. Andersons, other than him, the the Todd Haynes of the world, Martin Scorsese, go sure. on and on. There wasn't there wasn't a lot that really intrigued me or Sam. So I'm sure we're wrong, and we would love to hear from you telling us we're wrong. But we decided to pit two movies against each other in a death match where they're big franchise films, but they are franchise films where the lead character has been part of an ensemble up to this point, and now they are being singled out and given their own film. Josh, those choices are. Black Panther versus Solo, A Star Wars Story. So Ryan Coogler's Black Panther, we're talking about, of course, comes out on February 16, right around the corner. Stars Chadwick Boseman, Michael B. Jordan, Lupita Nyong'o, Daniel Kaluuya Get Get Out, Forrest Whitaker, Angela Bassett, and others. Solo stars... Most promising performer or something yep. like that. I think the Chicago film critics named him. I had At him least there. I did for Hail Caesar, Alden Ehrenreich as a young Han Solo. That's going to be out May 25. It also stars Donald Glover, Woody Harrelson, Paul Bettany, and Amelia Clark. And here I'll tip my hat. This fact is why I'm going Black Panther in this really? poll. Just because of the troubled production. You don't trust Ron thing. Howard. Well, I, I don't know that I – I think the problem is I do trust him. Yeah. To deliver pretty much what a capable I'm probably going to expect. But maybe not and what Lord and Miller would have done the exactly. original Exactly. When you have the 21 Jump Street Lego movie directors behind it, suddenly you're talking about like a Thor Ragnarok possibility, right? Yes. And now I don't think you are. And Black Panther, I think, has a lot of interesting appeal for being something that, yes, is within the Marvel Cinematic Universe, but also in many ways distinctly different. Well, boringly, I think I'm still inclined to be more excited. If I could only see one of them, I'd want to see Solo just because, I suppose, of my adoration generally for the Star Wars series and for Alden Ehrenreich as an actor and, of course, Han Solo as a character. That said, seeing that list of performers, that ensemble in Black Panther, right in front of me, not only Chadwick Boseman, but Michael B. Jordan, Nyong'o, Kaluuya, Forrest Whitaker, Angela Bassett. This is like the 27 Yankees. These are all yeah. great, great actors and actresses, and I'm now more excited to see Black Panther. We want to know what you think. Vote now, Black Panther versus Han Solo at filmspotting.net. If you leave a comment, and we hope you do, please let us know where you're listening from.
really good Adam Sandler with maybe an even better Grace Van Patten from Noah Baumbach's The Meyerowitz Stories, which is available now on Netflix, performing their song, Genius Girl. It's a father-daughter tandem. They've got their family around them, and they're playing a song that I think they say they wrote when they were both a little bit younger. And it's just one of those really funny, heartwarming moments in that film. It's great. Should have been an honorable. Can I just pretend like it was an honorable mention? Yes, you can. Even though I'm hearing it now and thinking of it now. No one has to know, but now they do. Oh, well. That was a wonderful moment in that film. And I have a few other honorable mentions. Let's hear those. Let's mix it up a little bit. Let's go with both of our honorable mentions. Okay. And then we'll get to the choices. The top choice. Let's give that a try. So this is for best musical moment. I had to consider some of the production numbers in the Polish horror mermaid musical, The Lure, because they're just so out there. They probably would have been stronger contenders if I liked the movie itself more. But on their own, there's something to see. On my Facebook page, Aaron Bergstrom mentioned the Elvis hologram intermittently breaking Mm -hmm. down and then performing in the casino lounge in Blade Runner 2049. That was one of my favorite moments in that film. So consider that here. And I did see Circus Musical. I saw The Greatest Showman with Hugh Jackman over the Christmas break. He gives it his all. He's really committed. Uh, It's weird in all the wrong ways, I would say, the movie. The story is a mess. But, but I have an honorable mention for Music Moment of the Year from it, despite all that. Has nothing to do with Hugh Jackman, I'm afraid, or Michelle Williams, but rather Zendaya, who I think we both loved in Spider-Man Homecoming. Mm -hmm along with Zac Efron. They have this really wonderful duet. It involves um, trapeze work that's, you just got to see it. Not much of the rest of the movie works, but that scene is fantastic. Okay, I really am going to breeze through these here. I did consider Genius Girl. That's why we played a scene from it. But beyond that, let me point out the most obvious thing I'll say I'll show. Music is such, of course, a key part of cinema that a lot of the best options here are also options in almost every other category. So moving moments. Sure. They're really buoyed by the music, whether it's a popular song or it's something that was composed just for the film. Scene of the year in particular, you're going to get a lot of good candidates with great music as well. And I held some of the candidates for this category for those categories, but even funniest scene and opening scene, it applies. T2 train spotting, No More Catholics is one I thought about. Valerian using David Bowie, Bell Bottoms from Baby Driver. But another Baby Driver moment that I know we both love is actually the coffee run, the opening credit sequence yeah. that follows the whole Bell Bottoms getaway scene where we see him going to get coffee and we hear Harlem shuffle and the way he's in sync with the music as he walks. And then even during a little trumpet break is at a music store window at that exact moment plays or mimics playing the trumpet along with the music there it's perfect i do love that sequence in my mind that's all of a piece with the opening but it's it's really not and it's it's also distinct in that it sets up and this goes back to what i was saying about the movie falling off it really falls off after that because i was ready for a full-blown musical i was like just keep going you know keep the pedal down on this and i think when the movie gets away from that it loses something We'll get to your top choice here in a second. I'll give you three more. My top five, four, and three. Ghost Story. I get overwhelmed. It's a sequence where we hear Daniel Hart, great composer, working here with the group Dark Rooms, one of his projects. And we see a flashback between past and present. Rooney Mara 
laying on the floor with headphones on, and that's intercut with her wearing headphones, listening to a song that her deceased husband played for her. The song itself, I Get Overwhelmed, is just so wonderful. Yeah. And the way it links the past and the present, I think, is really touching. And then we do get that other nice moment where she is laying on the floor and reaches back, and she just almost touches the ghost sheet. It's wonderful. And to what you were saying before, I had that as consideration for most moving moment. Okay. Call Me By Your Name, Love My Way, the great psychedelic first song where we see it a couple times. We see Army Hammers, all of our character dancing to that, really with no thought of anyone around him. And Elio, the great Timothy Chalamet, showing off his moves as well. Lady Bird, Crash Into Me. The use of yeah. Dave Matthews, where it's one of the best jokes in the film, a quick cut to two characters, including the main character, Lady Bird, listening to that Dave Matthews song. But for me, it's another moment where it comes up, and it's just a part where another character rips on the song, and she says, I love it. And that's such a crucial moment in Lady Bird because, as I said earlier, she's a character who is always about perception and trying to position herself as someone who is similar to the person she is, but she wants to be this heightened version, right? This heightened version of herself, this cooler version of herself. And in that moment, yeah. And in that moment, she realizes finally that no, she's just going to be herself. When she says, I love it for the first time, she doesn't try to conform to that cool group of kids. Just with that simple declaration. I love it. She's honest with the people in the car. She's honest with herself. So that's, that's some nice buildup to my top two, which really do Josh completely connect they use the same artist but i want to hear your top choice so i went with a pick from a movie we never really reviewed i saw it way back at sundance and you actually gave it a golden brick nomination but we never dug into it and it's band-aid the mm-hmm. directorial debut of zoe lister jones she and adam pally they play a troubled couple who decided to transform their most bitter fights into songs um as this ad hoc garage band they put together. Not everything in this movie works either, I would say, Mm -hmm. but I do think that central conceit really does. And anytime they're together improving both music and you get the sense to a degree, their lines, I just find those bits really funny, really honest and charming. My favorite one is of the two of them when they finally hit their groove while they're on stage at an open mic Mm -hmm. and it works almost as a, a montage. I couldn't unfortunately find the clip of that online. So here's another taste. And this comes from one of their early sessions together and it features Fred Armisen on drums. He's their kind of creepy neighbor who insinuates himself into their band. Why don't I give you some privacy? And yes, I can... We Definitely don't need any privacy. This is not a private matter. No, you leave, this gets real. So let's just, we're going to just push through. Can I get some air? No, you can't air. get air when there's we're open air everywhere. What more air do you need? Ugh. Great, I'll just... Please. Just Why? Give a second, we cause... need to finish this for one second. Why? Because I'm being held hostage, so I'm just gonna play. Dave, come on, That's man. That's so annoying. Just, just play something, then. I'm not stopping. Play a song. I'm in 
So Band-Aid probably deserved a little more attention this year than it got, but at least it gets my pick for best musical moment. Yeah, the Armisen stuff is really funny, and I'm with you. And I'll say this just right now. I think we probably screwed up Band-Aid. I'm with you. It doesn't all work, but a lot of it works really well. It probably should have been a Golden Brick finalist. It's a movie I do hope more people seek out, and that musical combination. It's a film that is all predicated on the music being genuinely good. We have to actually believe it to be good for them to devote that much time and energy to it. And we also have to see how it actually could be this healing tool. Right. And the movie pulls it off because the music is that good. So I'm really happy to see it make your list. One of our commenters on Facebook, Stephen Nam Lay, wrote this in response to my query for the best musical moments of the year. What? No love for John Denver? He was only featured in five different movies in 2017. So just like mushrooms were a prevailing theme here, at least at the end of the year mostly, but came up in at least three films this year, John Denver was a prominent factor in a lot of films this year. And it actually turns out that Steven's off by one It's six films, at least. And I know that because at one point, Vulture.com actually wrote an article, Why is John Denver's Music in so many movies this year? And I didn't have time to read the entire article again. But when I saw it initially, I thought it had something to do with his rights, the rights to the music coming available. And so it made some sense on a practical level that it would be more in vogue. But as I skimmed over the article today, it really seemed to just try to make a case for why the artists in question would actually use these songs. I'll link to that article in our show notes at filmspotting.net. Alison Wilmore, the fine critic for BuzzFeed, who of course is also the co-host of Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit, she wrote an article for BuzzFeed ranking the use of John Denver songs <laughs> in movies this year. Number six, Diary of a Wimpy Kid, The Long Haul, Kingsman, The Golden Circle, Number five. Number four, Free Fire. Number three, don't remember this at all, Alien Covenant. And then Allison's number two and her number one are my number two and number one. Logan Lucky, the end of Logan Lucky or close, Take Me Home, Country Roads. I don't want to spoil this for people who haven't seen Logan Lucky yet, though it's now been out for a while. But it is a moment where the daughter is in a beauty pageant the daughter of Channing Tatum's character, kind of an estranged father. I mean, he's he seems to be a pretty good father, but he's not living with his daughter at the time. He promises her that he will show up at this competition, and at the last minute, he does. It's the talent portion. She comes out to sing Rihanna's Umbrella and calls an audible. I picked this song because it's my daddy's favorite. Almost heaven, West Virginia. Allison writes, it's an irresistibly tear-jerking moment. Sure, this act of child generosity to a struggling parent, but it also captures the bitter sweetness lurking underneath what is, on the surface, a rollicking comedy. Logan Lucky's characters may identify fiercely with the place they're from, and they're from West Virginia, and of course that's the the state that John Denver is singing about in Country Roads, but they're also constantly made aware of the economic tenuousness and limited options that come with it. Theirs is a strong love, but a painful one as well. That's a contender for me as well for moving moment of the year. Really? Uh, Yeah, love it. it. I know we disagree on that. It pains me to disagree with Allison. Not so much you. Yeah, of course. (laughs) But I got to say, I did find that to be a little pandering that moment. It was so good. It's so earned, set up nicely earlier in the film. So I love that moment at the end of Logan Lucky, but... 
the best use of John Denver and, for me, the best use of music in 2017 comes from Bong Joon-ho's Okja. And the song is my favorite John Denver song, Annie's Song, which breaks out suddenly in the midst of chaos where Okja, the title super pig, has escaped with her owner, Mija, and they are in an urban setting. This is a city, and they go into an underground shopping mall, this giant super pig just wreaking havoc. It's being chased by the company that owns it and wants it back. It's being chased by a bunch of goons. And then a group called the Animal Liberation Front shows up to also try to steal it, but to save it and to help it. And suddenly, all the action just stops. It goes into slow motion. It's quiet for a second amidst all this chaos. And then Annie's song, of all songs, starts to play. You fill up my senses Like night in a forest Like the mountains in springtime Like a walk in the rain And we see Paul Dano's character, one of the members of this group, pick a shard, I think it's of plastic, from Oakja's foot. This is Allison again explaining why this is such a great scene and a great use of music. How is the scene so silly and so profoundly moving at once? Maybe it's director Bong Joon-ho's astounding skill with balancing tonal juxtapositions or the aura of serene kindness that Dano projects, or maybe it's Denver singing that ode to his life, the sweetness of his voice used not quite for irony or for pure sentimentality, but somehow both at once. There's no more perfect accompaniment for this moment of grace in a movie that portrays the world as increasingly cold and cruel. It's not just the best use of a John Denver song in 2017. It's one of the best scenes of the year. Allison is really good at what she does. That's well said. And I'm a little bit biased, I think, because I do really love Annie's song, a song which I'm sure was a huge hit, I think, in the 70s. And yet I went... 20 years of my life without knowingly ever hearing it. And then when I was in college, I played guitar in a community theater musical review. And when I first saw we were playing a John Denver song, you know, I just wanted to move on to something else. I thought this is going to be really lame. It ended up being my favorite song in the entire show. I never got tired of playing any song. And Mikado Murphy, our friend from the New York Times, who does those anatomy of a scene breakdowns with directors, he had... Bong Joon-ho on, and they talked about that scene. Oh, did they really? And the use of Annie's song in particular. I'll link to that in our show notes as well if you click on episodes at filmspotting.net. But Bong says he grew up hearing his brother, his older brother, sing it all the time. His older brother just was obsessed with the song, and he actually got really burned out on it. He got totally sick of it, but it's nostalgic for him, and it just came up randomly. He never envisioned it when he was filming it during the editing process, Something about it, as soon as the slow motion began, he just thought of that song and knew it had to be used. And there it is. And I'm with Allison. It's my favorite music moment of the year. All right. No more singing for this episode, but we might get to some tears, our most moving moments, plus the scene of the year when we come back to wrap up the rap party. Stay with us. Almost heaven, West Virginia, Blue Ridge Mountains. Shenandoah River Life is older Older than the trees Younger than the mountains Growing like a breeze Country roads Take me home To the place 
donation and thank you time. We have a few of them here, Josh, as we've been off for a few weeks over the holidays, and we do want to say thank you to some of our new and recurring monthly donors as well as those first-time donors. We start with Eddie S., Kevin N., and Beth E., along with Worlindo. Worlindo has been a longtime listener of the show. Otherwise, PayPal again, Josh. They're from Parts Unknown. Aaron Statt, also from Parts Unknown, but he's donating as a late Christmas present and late because it's our fault, Josh, for Jeff Statt. We thank Jeff and Aaron, and we hope that Jeff otherwise got some presents on time. Connor Tulaney, also a longtime listener and a recurring supporter of the show. Josh, he donates once again on behalf of his mother, Virginia, as Very a Christmas sweet. gift. Indeed. And again, I hope, Virginia, you got some other presents that actually came to you when they were supposed to. Alexander M. also donated. Sorry this is late, but I wanted to give you guys something for all the years of discovery and entertainment that you have provided for me. Hope 2018 treats you and the rest of Film Spotting Nation well. A new Silver Club donor, Eric O. A new Bucka Show donor, Ben. We know where he's from, Newton, Kansas. Two new $5 a month subscribers, Chris in Bakersfield, California, and Greg in Film Spotting East, Alexandria, Virginia. And we got... Another gold-level donor. Talk about longtime supporters and listeners. The Reverend Robert Lewis from Damascus, Maryland. Matthew P., a gold-level donor, along with Brig. I don't think we need to give even an initial here. There can't be that many Briggs in the world, right, Josh? No, I He knows so. who he is. Hollins from Indianapolis, also a gold-level donor. I'm still loving the show after nine years. Thanks for all the insight, entertainment, and passion. All the best in the new year. Same to you, Hollins. And we also got a gold-level donation from Fern Josephs. Thank you for a year of lively, entertaining discussions and for suggesting some movies I wouldn't otherwise have seen. At least each week, you are part of my conversations with friends as I say, well, my film spotters said X about X. Happy New Year to you and yours, and may 2018 bring you joy, peace, laughter, and an abundance of good movies. Fern, good enough last year in 2017 to have me come in with Music of the Broke, where she works. Oh. We held that screening I remember. of Heaven Can Wait, the Lubitsch film, and it was a lot of fun, so... Thanks, Fern, for that and your donation here. Absolutely. Finally, a platinum-level donation that comes to us from Lisa S. Happy holidays, Josh and Adam, and to all of your families. Just sent you some long-overdue coin and had to go to the old site to do it, though it could very well have been Operator Air. I hope you are all having a wonderful holiday season and looking forward to many more great shows in 2018. P.S. Josh, how about this? Loving every page of Movies Are Prayers. Congratulations. Hey, thank you, Lisa. Lisa mentioned going to the old site. Not so much Operator Air, but as we're talking about our Squarespace-powered site and new and improved site on the show, I'll point out to people that you can go to the About Us page. If you click on About at the top of the page, that is where you will find the link to make a one-time donation to the show if you are so inclined or sign up for that monthly subscription. Maybe at some point we'll have a more visible or a more efficient way to make that donation. But for now, just go to that About page. Remember me Though I have to say goodbye Remember me Don't let it make you cry For even if I'm far away I hold you in my heart I sing a secret song to you Each night we are apart Remember me We warned you we were doing Most Moving Moment next, didn't we? And so we're going to give everyone who has seen Pixar's film Coco 
a moment to collect themselves. And hopefully, Josh, we didn't spoil the moment in the film where that song is used. It's used multiple times, but really to its most devastating effect. For me, this was not just honorable mention. This was in my top five most moving moments of the year. And speaking to my point in the previous segment about music being such a key factor of the best scenes of the year and certainly some of the most emotional scenes of the year. This is right up there. Absolutely. We'll talk a little bit more about Coco in a minute. But first, let me talk about what really was the richest category for me. A lot of options to choose from. I knew I had an early contender way back at Sundance when I saw Call Me By Your Name and was floored by Michael Stuhlbarg's monologue at the end when he tells his distraught, confused, and heartbroken son, you two are good. Love that line. Then in our Dunkirk review, we highlighted the sublime sight of Tom Hardy's plane quietly Mm -hmm. gliding over the beach, spent of its fuel after making that final protective run, inexplicably, unexpectedly caused me to well up, which doesn't happen for me at war films. Okay, Mm -hmm. I know that can be a common reaction to them, usually not for me. On Twitter... Andrew Bodenbach at Bodie32, he reminded me of another unexpected moving moment from Logan when Wolverine carries the aged and confused Professor X up to bed, faces places. Man, that alone had a number of potential most moving moments. My choice, probably the woman coming out of her house to see her portrait across the facade. And one more honorable mention for me here that I actually share with Kenny Meyer comes from Lady Bird. Hey, Film Spotting family, Kenny Meyer calling from Boulder, Colorado again. Want to offer up my favorite moment or scene from 2017, Lady Bird. It's kind of an obvious pick, but I saw it twice and loved it even more the second time. I related so much to Lady Bird's experience. I graduated high school uh, just a few years before she did, and um, I had my driving listening to Dave Matthews' moment in 1999, senior year of high school. So I thought it was beautiful. Favorite moment of the movie. I'm not going to give away what happened just in case anybody still hasn't seen it, but Lucas Hedges comes to see uh, Saoirse Ronan while she's working at the coffee shop. They've had a fight, and he explains what's been going on with him, and that's all I'll say. And it broke me down, shattered me. It wasn't even dusty. There was a sandstorm going on in that theater i i couldn't hold it together both times that i saw it the acting is amazing the timing and the filmmaking and the direction from greta gerwig is just astonishing and i cannot wait to see what she brings next love you guys happy new year can't wait for the rap party show yeah ronan hedges share this hug and i think part of what made it work so well for me is that for whatever reason, I didn't expect the scene to go that way. Right. And it's uh, it was just such a relief and a surprise that I think mirrored the character's experience mm-hmm. that Gerwig was putting us through as an audience that really made it hugely moving. So, yeah, all those are honorable mentions. Told you I had a lot of options. This That's great. Category. And I actually have a few options in this case, fewer than normal, because I saved some of them for scene of the year. In fact, some of them. Josh, that you may have mentioned. I do really like that Hedges scene, though it wasn't a top contender for me, but you just articulated, honestly, what I love about Lady Bird so much, why it was my number one film of the year, and this really crystallized for me, seeing it a second time, which I did over the holiday break. There are surprises like that, I think, in every single scene, whether it's an emotional moment that happens, a funny moment that happens, just a beat, an expression on a character's face, 
every single scene in Lady Bird has a surprise like that, has a nugget like that, that really just blew me away, obviously, to be my number one film of the year. So we've already heard two of my honorable mentions, Remember Me, from Coco. I think anyone who has seen it will know the scene and the performance in particular that we're referring to. I mentioned Logan Lucky, Take Me Home, Country Roads. Also, this came up in our top 10 show, my number eight film of the year, Todd Haynes' Wonderstruck. I'll just say, are you Ben? That moment, it's a line that Julianne Moore says. It's when the whole film converges, and that's where I (laughs) collapsed. Faces Places was one of your honorable mentions. For me, it's the one we singled out during our review of that great Agnes Varda film. I think my number five movie of the year, Janine, the woman still living, one of the last people left in the village, it seems, not just one of the last women left in this coal mining village, and her story has never been told, and along come Agnes Varda and this artist J.R., and they take her picture and they plaster it on the outside of the set of apartments, a set of homes that they live in, and when she walks out and sees herself blown up like that, man, that destroyed me. Lady Bird, for me, it's another scene. And I don't want to spoil this one either for people who haven't seen Lady Bird yet, but it's the scene at the airport. It's the scene between Laurie Metcalf, Tracy Letts also there, the mother and father with Saoirse Ronan's Lady Bird. And I will say about it that it taps into some elemental fears that I think I have and I think every parent has saying goodbye. First of all, in general, never something that is fun, but that moment when you know you're You're seeing a child off to college. It's coming sooner than we want to think about it, Josh, for both of us. And then the fear of making a mistake or missing out on something that you can't get back. You can't experience it again. There are no do-overs. And if you've seen that scene or when you see it, you'll know what I'm referring to. And the way it does culminate, it's the way you probably want it to, even if you realize later it's what a more cliched movie would do with that moment. It doesn't. So again, there's another surprise element to that airport scene in Lady Bird. All of the ones I considered, but not my number one. What's yours? My number one, it does come from Coco. And just to show you how richly emotional Coco is, it's not the one that you have. Really? As an honorable mention. No. I mean, the one that got me, even from the first time I saw it, revisited Coco over the break, um, is almost in a side touch. Yet I think It's the very casualness of it that got me. It kind of snuck up on me. And it's also a spoiler that I I do want to get into. So maybe you can skip ahead if you haven't seen Coco yet and want everything in it to be fresh. I'm talking about the movie's epilogue here, which is set during the following year's Dia de los Muertos celebration. So we see Miguel, the main character. At this point, he's holding his newborn sister. She's been born in that time. And they're looking at the family's ofrenda, this table where they place the photos of relatives who have died. His grandmother comes in and joins them. And we just get this gentle cut where we see her placing a photo of her mother, Coco, on the ofrenda. That's really the only acknowledgement we get that a major character, I mean, actually, the title character has died in this year that passed. And there is just something about the matter of factness that fits in so well with the movie's frank attitude toward death. Um, Yet it was also moving enough to floor me. Um, And, you know, I've got a 94-year-old grandmother I'm very close to, so I'm probably an easy target, right, for this. But, um, Yeah, no surprise then that it is my most moving moment. No, and there are even others from the movie Coco that I'm sure both of us could mention. That's a great choice. My number one is 
the scene that was my number two behind Lady Bird up until today when I put it in and watched it again to refresh my memory. And it's not just recency bias here. I'd also rewatched Lady Bird recently. And as much as that airport scene slayed me again, Josh, I almost made a fool out of myself in front of the people who were around me rewatching a scene from, of all films, Aaron Sorkin's Molly's Game. This okay. is a movie. I know you haven't seen it yet, so you won't really know what I'm talking about. I'm certainly not going to spoil anything. It does come from a bit of the movie that occurs near the end. This is the movie, if you haven't heard about Molly's Game, just came out over Christmas, I think. It's based on a true story of Molly Bloom. Jessica Chastain plays her. She is a former Olympic-class skier who has a mishap that is talked about, is shown in great detail in the wonderful opening scene. And she, I'm reading from the description of the movie here, she ran the world's most exclusive high-stakes poker game for a decade before being arrested in the middle of the night by 17 FBI agents. So it's about her journey from being that Olympic-class skier to getting arrested, having her whole life ruined after she is hugely successful at arranging these poker games. This is a scene between Chastain, Molly, and her father, played by Kevin Costner, who at this point in the movie hasn't shown up for a while. He's someone we see in flashbacks, a very focused, very rigid, strict father who pushed her to be the best she could be. And they had a falling out. They were always at odds with each other. And I would have to spoil the scene and kind of spoil the movie to an extent to fully explain why it's so devastating for me. And I'm not going to do that, but it is the emotional climax in the movie in some ways, even though there's at least 20 minutes left. The whole scene is compelling for me. Between Costner and Chastain, they're by an ice skating rink. They're sitting just at a park, basically outside talking. But it's one line, Josh. You talk about moments in movies. It's one line and one line reading specifically where all of a sudden I went from just a guy enjoying the hell out of a movie to being literally in tears. Neither Costner as the actor or Sorkin, and I think he does a really good job directing and writing this film, do anything to telegraph the moment. They don't artificially heighten it. There's no music that I recall. It's the same shot. There's no close-up on the moment. It just captures the two of them in a two-shot, sitting on the bench, talking, having this exchange with each other. And there's an element of surprise to it because it's so not telegraphed. And it really, truly feels, Josh, on a character level, that this man is now expressing something that he didn't expect to. It's just bubbling out of him in the moment. And it starts with a very macho proclamation by the father, the father in control he's always been. And it just shifts swiftly to the father struggling to even get the words out, but not in a showy way, not in a Costner, I'm vying for an Academy Award sort of way, just an authentic way that is absolutely devastating. And I mentioned elemental parenting fears in Lady Bird. Here, what he's expressing is something even more primal and emotional and scary than seeing a kid off to college or being too stubborn to do the right thing. And it killed me, man. Molly's Game, my number one. Kevin Costner, Kevin late Costner. career I as want to hand great him the Oscar. movie dads, though, right? <laughs> Despite it being so non-showy, I'm willing to give him the Oscar for it. But how about, I think he was the only good thing in Man of Steel that I can remember, yep. really, as Superman's earthly dad. He's emerged so. into one of these guys I love seeing whenever yeah. he pops up, even in bad films. I'm with you. Okay. Are you with me for our final category? This is no man's land, Diana. It means no man can cross it, all right? This battalion has been here for nearly a year, and they, they barely gained an inch. All right, because on the other side, there are a bunch of Germans pointing machine guns 
at every square inch of this place. This is not something you can cross. It's not possible. So what? So we do nothing? No, we do, we are doing something. We are. We just we can't save everyone in this war. This is not what we came here to do. No, but it's what I'm going to do. The No Man's Land scene from Wonder Woman. It's actually my number five scene of the year. We hear Chris Pine, Gal Gadot. We mainly see Gadot in action. And if we had brought that category back, because there have been rap parties past where we shared our favorite action scene of the year, Mm -hmm. probably would have been my number one. As it is, it's a contender for scene of the year. Yeah, and I saw it mentioned a lot by listeners on social media. I'm a huge fan of that scene as well. I, actually, for, as an action scene, I might prefer the beach battle well, in Wonder Woman. You know what? I agree with you there. In terms of pure, thrilling but action. Yeah, this is the defining scene of this But it's the defining movie. scene of the movie For and sure. one of the defining scenes of the year beyond, we talked about this during our review at the time, the wish fulfillment justifiably of women and young girls, especially having the superhero image finally to emulate. But the, the grandness of the spectacle right. here is something that, I'm sorry, lots of Marvel and DC superhero movies strive for yeah, they and don't, don't pull off. They don't always manage. The, the clarity of this scene is remarkable. And I also am struck by, I can't believe I was this dense or it just didn't really hit me when I saw it in theaters. But it opens with Chris Pine very blatantly saying, it's no man's land. It's a place where no man can go. And of course, then mm-hmm. seeing this woman step out of it is what is so stunning about it. But It also occurs to me watching it again. It's mostly a scene about personal sacrifice. She takes on the bullets. It's mostly a scene of her, or at least initially is mostly a scene of her just couched down in the field. She's taking the brunt of the bullets so that then the rest of the men can advance. It's not just about kicking ass like most action scenes are, but guess what? We get to see your kick ass too. Sure. Right. Yeah. It's, it's great. And I have another popular pick from a popular movie as an honorable mention here as I get into my list. It's from The Last Jedi. We've talked about how Ryan Johnson has put a visual stamp, a distinct visual stamp on the Star Wars saga. And that's certainly true of my favorite scene in that movie, Ray and Kylo Ren's lightsaber duel in Snoke's red throne room. So I put that As an honorable mention for me, the sunken place in Get Out has to be in consideration, Mm -hmm. not only visually bracing, but as Tasha Robinson mentioned on our top 10 show, it's it's now part of our pop culture lexicon. And so when a scene does that, you know it needs to be in consideration for scene of the year. Now I'm going to get to some more idiosyncratic picks, I think, which is where I tend to go with this category. And this is... This one isn't even really a scene. It's more of an image. It's from The Lost City of Z. Do you remember James Gray's woke yes, Indiana Jones saga? I do. It came out so long ago. We I think a lot of us really forgot about it. it. We both really liked it. It is top 25 for me. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Might might be as well for me. But there is an underwater shot there. And Darius Kanji is the cinematographer. This is after one of Fawcett's men falls into the river. We see him from beneath. And there's sunlight filtering through the water. He gets trapped in this net and piranha attack. And it is as grimly gorgeous a death as I think I've seen 
on screen. Yeah, it's really good. But the scene for me from The Lost City of Z is one that Blake Griggs pointed out on Facebook. And I think we even talked about this during our review of that movie whenever it came out back in April or May. It's more of a moment, Blake says. It's the cut from the train to the crib and back in the third expedition. It's really just a beautiful bit of editing that sets up the central crux of this guy once again leaving his family to go back on this quest. Am I remembering correctly? Does that is that almost on a tracking shot? Yes. So we pass by yes. the bedroom and the yes. crib as if we're on the train. Exactly yeah. right. Yeah. That's beautiful, great. beautiful moment. Thank you, Blake, for reminding me of it. The Shape of Water, the fantasy dance sequence that happens in black and white. Also, one you could put as a moving moment or a great music moment. I'm with you on Last Jedi, Josh. I consider the throne room battle. And also, I find the final shot, which I'll just call playing pretend to be quite profound. Dunkirk, you had it as a moving moment candidate. That plane coasting, the final flight and the whole landing and the fire, everything there. I almost even got a little cheeky and suggested it could be one of the best music moments of the year because if I remember music correctly, away. the music stops. And I am being cheeky, but at the same time, I like Hans Zimmer's score. I think we remember Michael famously yes. saying during our top 10 show. He's that, done with Zimmer altogether. Yeah, he's just done with Zimmer. He said it's just bad enough of a score to probably win the Oscar. <laughs> I like it. I don't necessarily like how it's constantly employed. It is a little bit relentless, but that's a moment where that plane's coasting and the music all cuts out completely, and it is just a beautiful moment. The Florida Project, my number two film of the year, has a bunch of candidates. Mooney eating the breakfast buffet is so much fun. Just a bunch of jump cuts there. What I'll call the end flight then there's another one as well but i just have this sinking feeling even though we didn't coordinate it might be your moment of the year so i'll save it i've got one more honorable mention here though it comes from the documentary jane which i just saw over christmas it's about jane goodall it is by the director brett morgan it takes all this footage that the national geographic discovered that was shot in the 60s that my understanding is they didn't really know they had and they came across it and morgan uses current interviews with Jane Goodall, the most famous researcher of chimpanzees any of us have ever heard of. It intercuts those with this footage from the 60s. And the footage is incredible. What a treasure trove. And it's hard for me to put this as one of the the real contenders for scene of the year. It didn't make my top five because it's, it's barely even a moment. It's something we read on screen. But for me, Josh, it's the saddest truth of 2017 the most essential bit of wisdom for 2017. I wonder if you remember it. It's quite late in the film and it's where we're hearing more about Goodall now and the last couple decades of her life, not going back to the sixties. And over the course of the film, we learn about the romantic relationship with Hugo, the man who came to shoot her, the national geographic hired, and they ended up getting married. Mm -hmm. They fell deeply in love with each other. Well, he's this artist who has his own trade, and that trade is shooting great nature scenes. Yeah, it's his footage that's been discovered. Exactly. And it is incredible. You can see his eye and how great it is. But he wants to spend most of his time in the Serengeti. And at the end of the movie, we hear he's probably the most prolific, most acclaimed shooter ever of those landscapes, specifically in the Serengeti. So this is later in their marriage. They're now starting to have a little bit of a falling out. And we see on screen two bits of letters. Jane Goodall writing back to her mother for advice about her marriage. And this is what she says. Mummy had a visit from Hugo 
who said we had to make up our minds about the future. He needs someone on safari with him. Would I leave Gombe for him? Gombe is the place in Africa where they've set up this research center. And Mummy writes back, My darling little Jane, every man can be shaken off. And then a little bit later, ellipsis, there's no such thing as a man whose heart surely breaks. And then the dagger at the end, the last line, their work is nearly always first and their dreams. And then the woman who is to be a compliment to all those things. Oof. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, so, I mean, forget mind being blown. When I, when I read that on screen, I'm just going to let every guy out there just have a moment to collect themselves because I felt like a bomb had exploded in my chest. Well, how would you like? Love mum, it signs off. When we were talking and Sam might tack it at the end of the show before we got started here about Jane and you were sharing your story about the uncomfortable moment with the uh, chimpanzee fornicating, shall we say? <laughs> with flow. Okay. Yeah. That was what you just cited was the uncomfortable moment for me yeah. watching Jane with my working wife and two <laughs> budding feminist daughters, right? It's, it's like, I thought I was your work you, wife. You kinda, well, yeah, sorry. <laughs> but, you know, you, you, can, you, you can try to laugh it off and be like, we're not all like that. You can try. And then, and then you just know they'd look back at you and think about what year have you been living in? Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah I that think, was rough. I think it's not only a fundamental truth about, I won't say all men, but sadly, most of us, but I also think it does capture something fundamental about relationships in general, which is whether most of us want to admit it or not. At the end of the day, for a long-term relationship to work, for a marriage to work, it inevitably requires someone to sacrifice some portion of their hopes and dreams. And the fact that, that that comes through in this moment, the way it's expressed between this pioneering researcher, Jane Goodall, but then hearing from her, her old school British mother yeah. who always not only accepted her, but, but pushed her, prompted her right. to who go she's be this already pioneer. Introduced us to and as, then at this yeah. late in her life, she just has this, this wisdom and can share that with her. It's, it's the moment that honestly knocked me out more than any other scene this year. And those are just the honorable mentions, Josh. What is your favorite scene? Okay. So my favorite scene, well, I guess if a listener does accuse you of being orgasmic in your description <laughs> of a moment in a movie. We it, did get that hate mail. Pretty darn well better be your scene of the year, right? You can't, <laughs> can't really back off from that. So yes, I am going with those three, maybe four seconds in the Florida Project when Willem Dafoe's guardian angel motel manager. This is at the end of another long, thankless day. He leans over the balcony of the stairway at dusk. He lights a cigarette and all the lights along the motel's corridors come on in response. Just it marks him as the wizard of the magic castle and was enough for me. It's, it's a intake of breath scene. And when that happens, it's probably going to be my scene of the year. It's really, really good. That was the other one I was thinking about. It's this bit of magical realism in a place that is. It's always deeply, been playing with that line. Deeply, and, harshly real. And yet at the yeah. same time, all about the imagination of these kids. And it's preying on the imagination of the residents there as well. Mm -hmm. So it's just it's such a perfect moment. No, maybe that, that maybe that's it, too, as you're saying that. The kids have had these sort of magical moments that mm -hmm. we know aren't magical. Right? right. But to them, it to them, they are. They are. And here the Defoe character gets one. Mm -hmm. And there's just something wonderful about that. There is. I mentioned Wonder Woman, No Man's Land, my number five. Get out the sunken place is my number four. I agree with you and everything Tasha said. 
and I rewatched it today. And it's not just that it's a scene that has now provided this phrase that's part of the lexicon and is maybe the most memorable scene in that wonderful film. But Josh, Jordan Peele and his editor, it is a masterclass of slow burn dread. Yeah. Watching Daniel Kaluuya with Catherine Keener, the mother of his girlfriend there in that scene, and the way she just slowly seduces him, I would say, in terms of trying to get him to play this game and falling into her trap of hypnosis, the way the camera just really subtly inches closer every time until they're in that close-up. And then the way the sunken place is visually depicted is so in itself striking and is really all you need all you need to say. You don't really need to describe the sunken place to anyone at all. When we see the image of him floating out in that ether and what he's looking up at, it, it so perfectly encapsulates what we perceive Jordan Peele anyway as a director is trying to convey about where he is at psychologically and emotionally in that moment. But that, that's exactly what he had to do and his collaborators had to do. They had to envision it. Yes. And the way they, they've they managed to do it, I remember watching Get Out, really liking it, totally being on board as, as often as I was also being made uncomfortable. But when we went into the sunken place, I, I was like, oh, mm-hmm. here we go. Like we – We've also got a real filmmaker here. Yes. And maybe it's not fair. I, I know, like, I try to defend comedies on levels along with, you know, auteurist <laughs> efforts. But when you see something like that, you're like, okay, uh, now we're moving. Absolutely. My number three comes from a ghost story, and it's a cheat in a way because I couldn't really pick whether it's the Rooney Mara extended pie eating sequence or the time montage that happens late in that film. I didn't have a chance to review it today, but where we see a family from generations ago. Yeah. And then pioneers, essentially pioneers on the space where this house is, where all the action of the film takes place. And then we see over generations what happens to that family in that spot. There's something about that that still kind of chokes me up. And then speaking of choking me up, the lonely ghosts. When we see Casey Affleck's white sheeted ghost staring out the window and for the first time we see there's another one. Yeah. This isn't unique to him. This is affecting other people too. And when we see that character recur in that line, I don't think they're coming. That that has to be in contention for me. Okay, so we're at my top two and Josh, just just bear with me here. Okay. I I, I don't want to start another fight. I really don't. We don't need to have oh, the Battle gracious. of Ebbing, Missouri oh, part good two. Gracious. But I am curious. Well, really, I, I'm not curious because you may just want to hold yourself back from commenting on this scene. But if there was one scene in the movie where that worked, I would think <laughs> it would work for you. Yes. Despite all the tonal shifts it's taking, I would think this would be, I don't know, in the mix. But maybe, in fact, it's just further evidence for you of what's wrong with the film. It's the scene I'll describe as I know, baby. Francis McDormand with Woody Harrelson. She is the angered mother who has put up the billboards, haranguing the sheriff because she doesn't think he's doing enough to figure out who raped and killed her teenage daughter. And she gets arrested, and he's interrogating her. And we do know at this point that he is sick, that he is dying of cancer. This comes early in the film, not a spoiler. And they're just having... A back and forth, a McDonough-esque back and forth, full of righteous indignation and wit. And there is some humor along with the anger in the scene. And then all of a sudden, 
he just coughs up blood in Frances McDormand's face. He, he essentially spits blood in her face. And Josh, this moment for me is the scene where the whole movie clicked for me. And I realized that I was going to be on board with it because we've seen that tonal shift, the way it's handled, the anger and the humor. And then the, the notion of someone spitting blood on you is vile. And it's as vile as some of the things we see and hear in the movie. And then for the response, her response to that, to be one immediately of shock and then immediately after that be compassion, her to say, I know, baby. And then she takes charge and helps this guy out that she's been feuding with. It just stuns me. It stuns me just thinking about it right now. And I think both McDormand and Harrelson to, to walk that tightrope in that scene is really astounding. And that I think we can probably agree on in general. They're two wonderful actors. And I think they're amazing in the movie. Now, it turns out, Josh, McDonough and I share a brain on this scene as well. I was looking for the scene online just yesterday and I came across a Rolling Stone interview where McDonough, the the writer-director Martin McDonough, says that that scene is his favorite scene in the movie and it was actually an improv. It was not written exactly that way. That's Frances McDormand and how she reacted to it, but he says there's a moment of empathy on her part that's completely genuine where she calls him baby, and for him, it's what the whole film is about. And we heard as well from Gabriel Rosado, a listener on Twitter, who said this was his scene of the year. It sums up the whole narrative of the film and its humanistic nature. So I agree with Gabriel and Mr. McDonough and some others who adore this film and that scene in particular. I know. You probably don't feel the same. Well, it's certainly an interesting choice in that scene, and I can understand why McDormand would make it. I mean, yeah. the, the character, yeah, it, it's, a, it's an interesting way to go. I think if there was a reason it didn't work for me, one of the moments where I was out was the cancer revelation. I mean, hmm. that's this pretty is early. Just, well, <laughs> it, it, it's like now we need this guy to be also good. Give him cancer. <laughs> I mean, it was kind of, it's where I could see the mechanics. I would argue it, it, already. They're, mechan- they're always, yeah. The me- but how, how McDonough's baldly, all about mechanics. Exactly. So but it if is you funny don't how, mind that, yeah. it's not going to bother you. But I think that that scene, which I agree is interesting, would have worked for me if I, if I had been, you know, more on board with the choice of using that as sure. a character trait. See, that, that's the thing about this film is it's all about degrees. And so you see it very starkly that way. And I see it a matter of not trying to make him good, though we see lots of elements that he is. But at that point with, with cancer, it just makes it really complicated because we want to hate him. Mm. We want to hate him just like Francis McDormand does because how can we once, not, how can we not be on that can, mother's once side? Once you throw cancer in there, I you're, agree with you're you. not making things complicated. You're saying, now you must like this guy. No. Ooh, how no. do you feel? You're saying, you're saying <laughs> now your notions of him being terrible are going to be challenged. But it's how you do that. Again, I agree. I agree. And all, it's really effective. We're in agreement with what is being done? Okay. It's a matter of how well is it being done. Well, let's go on then. But to, you do have another pick. I do. Okay. I have I have my number one. Let's even though that. up until Please the last tell me minute, it's not from three billboards. Up until the last minute, that was my number one. I feel very strongly about how great that scene is. My number one scene of the year is a scene that we agree on and we disagree on. You actually mentioned it oh, in one yeah. of your moving moments. Our interpretation of it, much like our interpretation of Three Billboards, differs, and it's from Call Me By Your Name, the Luca Guadagnino film, and the knocks against me going with this pick is that this is a film that didn't even make my top ten. I'm going with a scene of the year from a movie that just missed my top ten, though I am, after today, preparing for this, kind of regretting it, and the other knock would be 
it's probably a cheat because I'm combining two scenes from that end, from the end. But I don't think even you would begrudge me that because they're too inextricably linked. It is Professor Perlman's monologue, The Father, to Timothy Chalamet's Elio, that speech that he gives at the end of the movie, combined with the final shot of the movie, the credit sequence, which I'll just say is Elio in close up sitting by a fire. So I know you love that scene. I think you love both of those scenes. I actually, do. Yeah. we disagree a little bit on, as I said, the interpretation of what the father is trying to impart there. And I bring this up not to try to ignite a disagreement about it, but just to articulate what I love about the scene. You saw the father sort of articulating uh, a credo of hedonism saying you're only young once live it up. And for me, I think that there's a line that does kind of suggest that in that end scene. But I think maybe you're focusing on it a little too much and you got to look at the context around it. And for me, the key lines of that monologue are Michael Stuhlbarg's Mr. Perlman saying our hearts and our bodies are given to us only once. That precedes the line that you really focused on during our review, not just our bodies, but our hearts. And prior to that, he says talking to his son who We'll say, if you haven't seen this movie, it's just coming after what could be called a breakup or at least two people who have had a really strong emotional and physical connection with each other. They're parting ways. And the father sits him down and he says, as his son is feeling so much pain, we rip out so much of ourselves to be cured of things faster that we go bankrupt by the age of 30 and have less to offer each time we start with someone new. But to make yourself feel nothing so as not to feel anything. What a waste. Have I spoken out of turn? For me, he's not counseling his son there to go feel everything, but to not avoid or to avoid trying to feel nothing. Don't cut yourself off from the world so as to avoid pain, but embrace opportunities, some opportunities, which it's a fact of life, only will come to you in your younger days. Don't avoid those opportunities to feel. And as simple as both these choices are, they're really bold too. This is a two minute plus monologue. It's incredibly theatrical. There is some cutting that's very subtle and I think very effective in the scene, but it is essentially something you would expect to see on a stage. And then ending with a four minute plus close up over the credits where we just watch a character feel in real time. That close up is inherently cinematic. So you get the combination of the two. It's also a wonderful music moment. The tender ethereal sounds of Sufjan Stevens' visions of Gideon playing over that scene and Chalamet's performance. We said it during our conversation about the movie. You get a full emotional journey of a character in that one shot in those four minutes. And I think I saw this in an IndieWire survey. Max Weiss, a writer for Baltimore Magazine, picked it as one of his, or maybe it was his scene of the year. And he said, it's particularly touching that his parents are just behind him. There's kind of shallow focus, but we can tell that they're in the background. They're preparing dinner, I think. And he says, it's touching that his parents are behind him, just sort of letting him feel, which is one of the great themes of the film. So that ties back to that father's line about feeling, about embracing those feelings. And for me, Josh, I think what I ultimately settled on, why I did think it was the, the two scenes, the combination that proved to be the scene of the year, is that's why we go to the movies, too. We go to feel, to experience pain and pleasure, and to be transported. And that's what this movie really does. I do understand some listener complaints, like the one person on Twitter who said pretty countryside isn't enough to make up for a dull, trite story. Okay, there's there's not a lot of plot here. I suppose you could argue there's not a lot of story here, but there was nowhere else in movies this year 
I wanted to spend time in, I wanted to luxuriate in, than the world that Guadagnino creates here. And I don't mean I really want to spend time at that gorgeous house on that gorgeous estate in northern Italy, though, don't get me wrong, sign me up. I'd be happy to go there. I mean in the kind of intoxicating, alluring alchemy that this filmmaker has has created with these characters and this space and the way they interact with each other in this space that can only happen in this space at this point in time, all swirling with this sense of intellectual and individual discovery as well. Even if, Josh, call me by your name, didn't emotionally wreck me like the movies that I mentioned during my most moving scenes, and that's the case, I felt this movie more than watched this movie, and that's really rare. And I'll just close with a little bit here from Barry Jenkins, the great director of Moonlight, who saw this movie recently, and he tweeted about it. He said, it's refreshing to see a work that aligns curiosity, fear, and courage side by side, image to image, human beings drifting from one emotion to the next and back, revealing and retreating from themselves, from life, all of us capable of so much, but allowing ourselves so very little. So there you get a little bit more evidence as to why Barry Jenkins is Barry Jenkins. And I, me, he just articulated so much more eloquently and concisely than me what is truly special about this film. And I think he is speaking ultimately to what we get in that final 15 minutes in these two scenes as well, what really does make this movie one of the films of the year. Yeah, it's a special film. And just to nuance the concerns that I may have expressed with the Stuhlbarg monologue, it's, you know, I think everything you said was there is there. It's an incredibly complicated and layered moment where many things are going on and many things are being argued for and expressed. And I guess I'm not so much focusing on one line. Well, first of all, it's mm-hmm. there. So it, it is textual evidence, but yes. also it's largely supported by many of the things you described in the film as sure. being one of sensuality and feeling and so that's i'm putting it into context with mm -hmm. the peach and the apricot juice but that's where we disagree too all of the other things that do emphasize the going after the immediate pleasure and getting the gratification that you want right now and the only reason i raise that as a concern Mm -hmm. is again in the context of this year we've had where, as I said in our review, don't, again, don't want to get all into it, but where we are reconsidering sexual ethics, this is a movie that I felt like would have been well served to have done that a little bit. It's really funny, too, to me, you know, this wasn't something that I dug into so much when I did see it at Sundance. It's something that I thought a lot more about when I saw it November. Mm-hmm. When was it out in Chicago? And I think the year, I think this year of talking about the mm-hmm. Me Too movement and yeah. sexual abuse. I mean, I think that's really made me rethink these things and stand back and say, well, how do we want to conduct ourselves as sexual beings? And, and, and I'm not at all saying that everything in Call Me By Your Name needs to be moralized or right. rejected. It's just sort of the place that movie's standing. I, I think, I, yeah. and, and, and some of the things that I feel it does argue for I think puts us closer to things like the sexual abuse of power than it puts us further away. Hmm. And we, we, you know, you open yeah. you open this basket, so sure. it's not something we can completely settle here on a rap party conversation. But I just wanted to recontextualize the questions I had sure. with with a scene. I mostly love had it as an honorable mention and a movie I quite appreciate. Yeah, and that's all expressed very well. And I think that. 
the sexual ethics question here is one to consider. Absolutely. I also do think, though, that there's almost no way for it to be introduced efficiently and effectively without it going down the path of not only moralizing, but melodrama. So for me, it's a matter of you kind of either get on board with the movie Sexual Politics or you don't. And for me, I did. But we also disagree a little bit on that that hedonistic view of the characters. And we talked about this during the review a little bit. Oliver is a character who, yeah, when we see him dance, when he comes here, he just lets go. Complete abandon. And he's someone who we see, you mentioned, he eats that that egg and he just devours it. But how does that scene conclude? There's a difference between hedonism, reckless abandon with no restraint whatsoever, and someone embracing pleasure but having restraint. And that scene ends with him saying, no, I'm going to only have one because I know what would happen if I had another. The whole film... Well, for me, is a study first, in, in restraint in their relationship. Restraint's at the core of everything the movie's about. And their first intimate encounter, he, yes. he says, I know myself. So he's identified. That, that's part of what it's toying with. Yes. Absolutely. Well, I do. Yeah, we agree on that. Well, I'm glad we ended on a note of agreement, Josh. We also agree that the show is over. We are done with our 2017 rap party. Not live. You know what? Less fun for us, too, but still a lot of fun. It's always... Just a good time, I think, to reflect on our favorite moments of the year. And we can't wait to hear your feedback. You can email us at any time, feedback at filmspotting.net. You can also send us an MP3 file or leave us a short voicemail, and we may use it in an upcoming show, 312-264-0744. At filmspotting.net, you can find 12 years of reviews, interviews, and top fives in the show archives. And while you're there, vote in the current Film Spotting poll. We're going to be looking ahead to 2018 with this one. It's a death match. Black Panther versus Solo, a Star Wars story. Which one are you most looking forward to? And if you haven't already, we always appreciate it if you check out the Film Spotting family of podcasts, The Next Picture Show, and Film Spotting SVU. You can find both in Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast app. Out in wide release this weekend, Liam Neeson is the commuter. A businessman caught up in a criminal conspiracy during his daily commute. Vera Farmiga stars as well. Proud Mary Taraji P. Henson is... A hit woman who kills a drug boss only to learn that she has left a boy orphan. And really, on a completely different note, Paddington 2. Does he kill anybody? <laughs> I think, I think he's really, for the really good one. with the gun. In limited release, In the Fade, the Golden Globe winner for Best Foreign Language Film, Diane Kruger stars as a woman seeking revenge after her family dies in a bomb attack. I think she won Best Actress, if I recall correctly, for In the Fade at the most recent Cannes Film Festival. Film stars don't die in Liverpool. This is the true story of a romance between a young actor and ailing Hollywood icon Gloria Graham. Gloria Graham of In a Lonely Place fame. Love that Nicholas Ray film. Nicholas Ray, who she was once married to. Very complicated relationship. The Bad and the Beautiful. She stars with Kirk Douglas, that Vincent Minnelli film. She's always been an actress who has fascinated me and now I am looking forward to seeing this film. Annette Benning stars as Graham with Jamie Bell. And Phantom Thread, the latest from Paul Thomas Anderson. It's a 2017 movie, but... We're going to review it because it deserves it. And we're going to look forward finally to 2018 and share our movie preview, the questions we have about the upcoming movie year. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant and 
studio guests for a short while, yeah. Jeremy Wellhausen. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. If you like what you heard, give us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts. That way we can reach some new listeners. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. We obviously we had dinner the other night with the wives, so we're we're pretty caught up. I don't know. Is there anything we didn't touch on from the holidays, Josh? Anything you you held out? No, I spilled all my guts. Um, we didn't talk about any movies. No, really, no, we spared we them. We didn't actually. That Maybe it's a, because the she wives were appreciative of that afterwards. Sarah was certainly appreciative. She, she was like, "That well, is that was nice. Of, we didn't have to talk about uh, of all too the times we've been show. out together, and there, it's a fair number now over the years." That is the least we've ever talked about movies. Yeah. I think film spotting came up once. I think we talked for about three minutes about the show that they weren't part of, and that was it. We were still spent from the top ten two-parter. So I hope a few days later you're ready to get back into this. I think I'm, I, I think I'm ready. I, I'm excited about our categories anyway. So yeah. what, what did you see, though, over, over the break? Yeah, I saw a lot. I don't feel I, like I saw a lot. I saw – I did a little revisiting, um, and so some, one thing fun we did – because everyone was off school and everything, we went to the music box uh, Miyazaki, or I guess it was a Studio Ghibli tribute right. series. I uh, saw we saw that. Princess Mononoke because mm-hmm. I'd never seen it on the big screen. It was one of the few we haven't watched together as a family. Glorious, really. Everybody on board. Yeah, yeah. Even though it's, I'd say, I mean, adult is maybe the, the wrong word for it, but it's one of the more grown up ones, I think, in terms of the fantasy it's dealing with. So, so that was great, and of course, fun to see it with a crowd. Um, we also, as a family, went to see The Greatest Showman. You did? Yeah. You saw Circus Musical? I'm surprised, um, you know, with the, the musical yeah. interests in Sophie. your family, you haven't gotten dragged. And yes, I do I'm say surprised. dragged to well, that. Well, maybe because she's just so focused on Broadway and theater at this point. Yeah. And or, this is original. I, I don't know. Maybe she's just oblivious to this, but well, it hasn't come up. I kind of want to see it because, you know, just to support something like this, like a, an original movie musical. And I, I saw your star rating. You're not a fan. No, it might. It'll come up. It'll come up later in the show. Uh, there, there is a highlight. I would say so, um, but not much more than that. Okay. Uh, what else did we do? We had uh, Star Wars simultaneous double feature what going does on that in the mean? house one night. <laughs> Different rooms. Teenager has the friends over for a Star Wars marathon, so they go upstairs. They watched New Hope when they were done. We put it on downstairs. <laughs> really? With uh, the middle schooler and uh, had she not seen it before? Oh yeah. Oh, they, we've seen it all. Okay. Yeah. This is just for fun. Yeah. It was just for fun. So so <laughs> while they're watching, I don't Empire, get to revisit movies ever. Yeah, I know. Well, we're there watching Empire upstairs. We watch New Hopes downstairs. It's, uh, you know, I don't get sick of it. Um, and then, yeah, these are, this is all family stuff we saw. Jane, I knew that would be a hit um, with the, the budding naturalist in the family. Yeah. And it was, you, you saw that over the break. I did. Too, it's going to, it's going to come up in our, our rap categories, actually. I, I can't fathom. <laughs> it is. No, it's going to come Which up. Which category but, <laughs> that is going to be? But please don't tell me music. I don't know if you saw my tweet, but really, I did. I had one of those terrible watching movies with the parents' experience. Okay, and at this point, we're the parents, of course. But it was a case over the holidays where I brought I brought the film back to Iowa. We were at we were at Sarah's house. I know where you're going. <laughs> we were at Sarah's house, and they're in the other room. They're playing board games. They're they're doing all sorts of things. Whatever. 
I decide to sneak away to the living room where the DVD player is for 90 minutes or whatever. And to I'm going to watch gonna, Jane. I'm going to watch Jane. Why not? It, it, it seems it like seems like an odd selection in that scenario. But maybe okay. I didn't bring a lot of screeners home. And I just thought, you know, if people did wander in, at least it's something. Oh, okay. it's not some like crazy foreign yes. language film yeah. that they're not going to be, you know, or whatever. You're trying to be well. Some arty film. Exactly. I thought Jane Goodall. They've all heard. Sure. Jane Goodall. So we'll watch this. Got it. I swear to you, Josh, you couldn't have written it any better. They were out of the room for the first 30 minutes of the movie. Mm -hmm. They walk in and sit down. Sarah's parents and Sarah walk in and sit down at the precise moment where, and since you've seen it, you'll you'll know what I'm talking about. I already know. All this description by Jane of the female chimpanzee flow. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And it's the moment where Jane Goodall realizes, discovers, that chimps are not monogamous. No. So we get, essentially, for two minutes, really gratuitous chimp porn. Yeah. I mean, Flo going to town with every male. Yeah, not monogamous within the same five minutes, let's say. (laughs) Exactly. So every male chimp there. Yeah. Having their way with flow. That's when my in-laws walked in and all they they didn't say a word. I didn't look at them. They were all behind me. I didn't look at them. They didn't say a word. The next day, though, I got a, what were you watching? They needed some time, a little space. You should have said like, "Oh, it's it's been like this the whole time. This whole movie has been like this." We we watch <laughs> chimp porn. I mean, we do watch you know a fair amount of nature docs. So, as a family, we're accustomed to that to a degree. Okay. This was a little intense, even for for other nature docs. But the one thing we all did remark on is that none of them put down the bananas. We thought that was interesting. Okay. It's, it's like they have their priorities yeah, in order. Like, all right, it's time, but I'm not letting go of this no. banana. Flo held on to her banana, whoever, all yeah. the guys held on to theirs. I mean, that was kind of a something I hadn't seen before. Yeah. So, really, I, I saw Jane. I did go with the whole family, including some of my kids' cousins, my nieces and nephews. We went to see The Last Jedi. They were all seeing second it for the time first for time. I was, only, third. I was the only person seeing it for the second okay. time and, and had a good experience with that. And then I did watch Lady Bird for the second time because I watched it with Sarah one night. Guess what? Just as good the second time. I Still imagine. absolutely the best film of the year. Otherwise, Sarah and I, on New Year's Eve, we went to see, we talked about this, The Minutes at Steppenwolf. Yes. William Peterson's in that. That's an intense play. And second Steppenwolf snub of us, but that's, that's true. okay. I know. We've got to get back to our... Our normal double date there. So then the other movie thing that I could never do, and I know you could never do, but my my son at age 15 is in this in this mode or at this place in his life where he can do it, even though he's not a huge movie guy. Holden's not a huge movie buff. He has a friend who's a gigantic, just fanatic about films. That's, that's all he does is watch movies every minute of the day. And he comes into the city even and goes to all these screenings. He's at some of our screenings that are like promotional screenings. So he's seen every movie in advance before it comes out. He called Holden and said, do you want to come over and spend the night the next day? We're going to have a Christopher Nolan marathon. So they started at 1030 in the morning. They watched every Christopher Nolan film except Insomnia and except The Following. Isn't that his first film? I believe so. They so watched, yes. they watched all three Batman movies. They watched Interstellar, which was Holden's second time. That's the only one he'd seen before. Second time through Interstellar. He liked it even more the second time. He watched Dunkirk. They watched The Prestige. 
Inception. They did them all. They yeah, did them all. they did all of them except for That's those impressive. two. They ended at like five in the morning. Oh, man. Apparently, they watched all of those. And actually, he did. I'm happy to report he loved all of them. He Good. really did love all those films. And he said he stayed awake for all of them. Now, somehow, I don't know how this happened. There was a bonus film. Holden says to me, Daddy, have you ever heard of Neil Breen? <laughs> it's not coming That's, back to you, no, Josh. It is. The yeah. bad movies. Oh, my gosh. The bad movie one? Bible. The one we yeah. saw the clips of he watched. Exactly. The, one, the guy who's How always does one a god. stumble from... I don't know, but Kirk his friend apparently loves watching these movies, and they watched an entire film. The one that follows the one we watched, was it Double Down or something? It's the one that and comes after that. They watched familiar. the entire film, and Holden could not stop laughing about it. He had such a good time. <laughs> I guess that would work in the midst, maybe, of a—or was this like a chaser at the end? It was like a chaser, okay. I think. <laughs> film Spotting is listener-supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad-free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.